Welcome to The Free Will Show, a podcast that provides a beginner-friendly introduction to free will while also exploring cutting-edge developments on the topic. I'm Taylor Sear. And I'm Matt Flemmer. In this episode, we talk with Simone Gubler about forgiveness, its value, and some potential problems with institutional attempts to make forgiveness happen. Thanks for listening. I'm happy to introduce Simone Gubler, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. In addition to being a professional philosopher who's interested in the law, Simone is admitted to practice as a lawyer in Australia. Simone works on questions at the intersection of moral psychology, normative ethics, political philosophy, and the philosophy of law. And more specifically, she's interested in the relationship between morality and institutions and the ways in which moral and economic thought intersect. She's the author of an article uh, titled Recent Work on Forgiveness, published in 2022 by the journal Analysis. And we've invited her to come on the show today to talk about forgiveness and the law. So thanks for joining us, Simone. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself, your work, and how you came to be interested in working on issues like forgiveness and the law? Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, So thank you for having me. Uh, As you said, I'm a philosopher and an erstwhile lawyer. And I came to be interested in forgiveness during my law studies in Australia, where I had the opportunity to witness some innovative restorative justice programs in action. Um, So maybe I could briefly describe one of those if if that would help. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So these were circle sentencing programs that diverted people who might otherwise have been sentenced in a conventional criminal proceeding into an alternative process. So say that somebody assaults their next door neighbor. Uh, The traditional criminal justice system might hold a trial and lock that person up for a period of time, uh, but when they get out, they might still have to live next door to their victim. Other people in the community might still worry about their potential for future violence, Um, so the crime will kind of have a long tail of consequences um, for everyone in the community. Um, And it's not one that's easily resolved by the traditional retributive process. So the idea of these sorts of restorative justice programs was to get the impacted community together right after the crime to try and work out strategies and solutions that won't just punish the crime, but that also stand to heal the communities impacted by it. So um, these are processes that are supposed to treat the problem of living as neighbours as central to rather than orthogonal to the process of justice. Hmm. Uh, So in circle sentencing, community leaders and lawyers would work with the victim, the perpetrator and others from the neighborhood who are impacted to try to come to conclusions that would help to heal and restore all of those affected by the crime um, and that would allow them to live together with greater confidence in the future. Mm -hmm. So um, really interesting stuff. Now, some of the people facilitating these programs would talk about forgiveness as a desirable goal or they'd insert it into um, processes of mediation. And I became really interested by this tendency and kind of captivated by the idea that forgiveness, which is this value that I'd kind of traditionally associated with interpersonal relations, not with Mm -hmm. uh, legal proceedings, um, (laughs) that it could have a role in this um, sort of process. Um, And initially, I thought, you know, wow, what an appealing idea, Um, you know, as a a potential mechanism of social reconciliation, uh, forgiveness doesn't feel harsh, like retributive justice, it promises radical results, Uh, whatever it is, it's standardly supposed to be kind of categorical. So you're either forgiven or you're not, um, but it transforms the the state of affairs created by wrongdoing. 
it enjoys a certain sort of moral authority. So years of association to organized religion have left forgiveness with something approaching a kind of pattern of divinity. Um, and, and I think this is like very attractive from the state side of proceedings, it costs very little to pursue in financial terms. Um, <laughs> So, so here's this amazing thing, right? You know, it's cheap, um, it's, it's transformative, um, it's, uh, you know, it promises this kind of radical form of reconciliation. Um, it has association to all of these existing systems of value that people are embedded in and, and want to validate. Um, that all sounds really appealing. Um, and the kind of qualities that seem to recommend it as a really good resource for those who want to help heal communities that are recovering from wrongdoing. Um, so I, I thought this was interesting. Um, but I guess even back then, I was a little suspicious as well. Um, it kind of had, you know, the too good to be true <laughs> quality to it. Um, and so I decided I wanted to think a bit more seriously about forgiveness and its potential role in processes of justice. Um, so when I decided to study for a PhD in philosophy at the University of Texas, I focused my research um, on, on that topic and I wrote a dissertation that was entitled Forgiveness in the Public Realm that treats these kinds of processes um, in a fairly sustained way. Yeah, great. In some of your work, you explore the question of how the practice of forgiveness arose, arose in human society. Could you give us a brief sketch about your answers to these questions? Okay, uh, so this is a massive question. Um, and first of all, I should say that I don't think we've inherited one single concept of forgiveness. Um, rather, I think that there's a cluster of concepts that have some kind of shared features of family resemblance. And I'm also not sure that there's a unitary story to be told about the origin of the cluster either. Hmm. Um, that said, you know, in, in my dissertation, I wanted to think a bit about the origins of forgiveness and, and possible, um, you know, grounds of its justification. Um, and, and I thought, well, there are different ways we could approach the question. Um, so we could, for example, study historical documents for mentions of forgiveness and cognate practices, and we could try and, uh, you know, do a bit of archaeology, conceptual archaeology, and give a historical account. Um, and the philosopher David Constant has a fantastic book like this on the emergence of the concept of forgiveness in the West. So he argues quite convincingly to my mind um, that the modern concept of interpersonal human forgiveness with its storied associations to apology, remorse, a change of heart on the part of wrongdoer, um, that's a concept that didn't exist in ancient Greece and Rome. Um, even more surprisingly, he suggests that it's not present in the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament or even in the early uh, work of the patristics, um, so early Jewish and, and Christian commentaries on the scriptures. Um, and uh, he arrives at this story by studying texts where people try to work out how uh, to commend the value of forgiveness uh, to others, uh, what it means um, when references are made to it um, in religious texts. Um, and, and I think it's a, it's a fascinating um, piece of work. So I highly recommend it to all your listeners. Um, what I did was a little different. So um, rather than engaging in historical recovery, I conducted a kind of speculative genealogy. So a how possibly story um, about forgiveness. I asked, um, why would creatures like us invent a practice like this? And what purposes could it have served? Um, and I was a bit inspired by Hobbes's uh, treatment of the topic, uh, which I guess is probably surprising um, to some because obviously mm -hmm. Hobbes is not a famous uh, thinker of forgiveness, but I think that's unfair. Um, the forgiveness plays a really important role um, in, in the society of contract as he imagines it. It's one of the laws of nature. Um, and um, inspired by his treatment, I argue that forgiveness is a practice that could quite plausibly have emerged 
even in a society full of self-serving agents who have little concern with being moral. Um, so it's a practice that could have been necessitated just by the emergence of contract as a way to deal with breaches. Um, Hobbes tells us that there are two ways to escape a contract by performance or through forgiveness. He tells us, moreover, that forgiveness is the sort of thing that should be hateful to its recipient. So on his account, it's bad to be forgiven. Um, Hmm. And the reason for this is because it communicates that you're unreliable um, to other people in a society where a lot of your most important relationships depend upon um, trust. Um, You can't be trusted to complete contracts. Um, So on on this sort of social account, forgiveness emerges as a practice that helps us to solve problems of social coordination. Um, And then over time, it kind of acquires moral valorization as well. Uh, We add moral valuation to the story um, in order to make it, you know, (laughs) um, extra repugnant uh, to breach our our bonds of of trust uh, with others. so um, on this sort of account, forgiveness is not, at least at its point of imagined origin, a moral concept, um, uh, even if it provides us with reasons to see why we've found it useful to moralize about it. Um, and I think that one thing that's nice about telling a kind of how possibly story like this, which is, you know, totally um, uh, <laughs> um, very highly idealized story, um, you know, it's one that you might read and say, well, that's obviously fabricated, but it's plausible, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And, and if we can show that it's plausible, then it can show us perhaps that forgiveness is only contingently a moral practice, or that we could have practices of forgiveness um, without their, their moral valuation. Um, and that's important for me um, because in, in other aspects of my work, I say, well, look, forgiveness isn't something that's necessarily good. Um, and so it's nice to have this how possibly story in the background um, to help motivate the plausibility of that claim. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the next question I was going to ask is related. You've already hinted at some suspicion about the goodness of uh, forgiveness and then Hobbes's take on forgiveness. Um, it's widely thought that forgiveness has positive value, but you raise some challenges to that view that it's always a good thing. Um, do you think that forgiveness is ever morally obligatory? And can you tell us um, when you think forgiveness is good, when it isn't good, and why? Okay, <laughs> that's massive. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> big question. Yeah, Um Well, the big answer is that uh, I think that it can sometimes be good to forgive, but it's never obligatory. So no one can demand your forgiveness of you, and it's not bad when you fail to forgive. Um, Another way of saying this uh, in fancy philosopher language is that I think that where forgiveness is good, it is supererogatory. But I think in many cases, um, forgiveness isn't even good. Um, And um, I don't think that it's ever morally obligatory per se. Um, now that's, Can you give us an example of a case where forgiveness is not good? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, so, okay. So, I mean, a classic kind of case that, that lots of people in the literature might put forward is um, one that involves a, um, you know, a really profoundly wrong um, act. So some people think that, um, you know, forgiving um, the Holocaust would be immoral because it fails to show an adequate appreciation of the moral gravity of the harms inflicted. Um, some people also think that it's immoral to forgive where the wrongdoer isn't repentant. Um, I'm not sure about that. Um, but, but the kinds of cases I'm interested in are cases where, um, so, um, forgiveness gets kind of dicey in context of structural injustice. 
So in a society where, you know, men dominate via patriarchy, for example, and women are standardly oppressed, um, any woman who forgives a man kind of runs the risk of perpetuating the conditions of her own oppression. And um, it's uncomfortable stuff to say that it's bad to forgive under those circumstances. But I think that if forgiveness is offered as a kind of value, especially to those who have, um, you know, identities associated with oppression um, and um, it's celebrated, um, in its association with oppression, then it can become really toxic. Um, and, and I mean, I think it's noteworthy that in the history of thought about forgiveness, there's been this kind of conceptual distinction that people have often made between pardon, which is something that, you know, socially dominant agents can offer, kings offer pardon, and then forgiveness, which is for, uh, you know, ordinary peasants like us. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that sometimes social discourse around forgiveness tracks this dynamic. Um, and sometimes forgiveness is commended to those who really don't have any other social power. And its expression in those situations can be, you know, morally powerful in some respects, but I think it's also very costly um, to those communities. And so we have to be really serious when we think about um its employment in context of, of structural injustice. The philosopher Maisha Cherry has some really great work on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's shift over to the public sphere now, turning to law and to this more general question. What are some cases in which the issue of forgiveness arises in connection with the law and the state? And in particular, are there times when public institutions um, try to facilitate forgiveness? Great. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there are cases like um, that which I mentioned at the beginning um, of our discussion involving things like circle sentencing. Often the language of forgiveness gets deployed in uh, restorative justice contexts. In practice, state-sponsored forgiveness could also involve um, assigning roles to forgiveness um, in in quite formal um, processes dealing with historical wrongdoing, like truth and reconciliation processes. Uh, So a very famous example is the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where the commission leader, Desmond Tutu, famously said that there would be no future for South Africa without forgiveness um, and vested the value of forgiveness with great significance in the context of that um, process. Um, so we can we can see the state kind of sponsoring uh, programs of forgiveness um, in cases of historical reckoning and healing. That can also happen more informally. Um, so sometimes leaders of states request the forgiveness of victims of historical wrongs when they offer apologies for those wrongs. Um, this has happened recently in Canada and Germany, uh, for example. Um, and my kind of thought is um, that um, there's, that we should be suspicious of any state-sponsored process that adopts forgiveness as a role, uh, whether forgiveness complements, supplements, or even substitutes for other mechanisms of rectification um, or restoration. Um, and, and that kind of stems from an awareness that the forgiveness implicated in these processes that the state, this big powerful entity, initiates is ultimately the forgiveness of victims, of people who've been wronged. Um, And it's the sort of thing that, you know, the state should be very cautious to claim an interest in. Um, And and I think that sometimes these processes are conducted in ways um, that that violate the rights and interests um, of victims. It's very difficult to translate this value that can have so much significance in our private relationships um, to these big public contexts where it can be, um, you know, cheapened, distorted, exploited, um, and where it ultimately trades um, on, on the goodwill and, and availability of, of people who've been subjected to, to serious wrongs. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, you've already started to answer this, but I was going to ask what other kind of potential problems you see in these sorts of institutional attempts to make forgiveness happen. Are there any other problems besides kind of looking at the way that the rights of the victims might be, you know, not taken seriously? Yeah. Um, so I think I kind of have like general worries about justice. Um, right. So, you know, <laughs> proceed yeah. from the position that what the state should seek in cases of grave injustice is justice. Right. Um, and forgiveness sometimes gets substituted, um, you know, without sufficient attention to people's need for, for substantive justice. Um, and that's troubling. Um, I also just think that maybe state sponsored forgiveness isn't compatible um, with, with processes of justice. So there are things about it that we should be suspicious of, um, especially when it comes to procedural justice. So forgiveness is um, very difficult to make transparent (laughs) to observers, right? We don't know why the person who says they're forgiving says they're forgiving. So that makes it a strange thing to vest social power in. Um, It it has the potential to be arbitrary. Um, So if we, um, you know, say, look, Forgiveness is a possible uh, means of resolving a social complaint that someone can have alongside other means, um, then then this arbitrariness worry becomes really acute. So if I um, am driving my car and I happen to hit a priest, right, um, who's an unusually forgiving person, um, then, then maybe when I'm involved in a process of restorative justice with that person, I can expect a fairly uh, good outcome, uh, whereas Taylor, um, you know, has the misfortune um, of hitting a child with a very vindictive family, uh, understandably aggrieved, um, and things would go much worse for him in that process. And I think that any time we're talking about, um, you know, enhancing the roles that victims have in the determination um, of of crime um, or of sentencing, um, we really should attend to these questions of procedural justice. Um, because if we don't, then we have you know, like there are serious risks of undermining uh, the standing of the justice system. And that really matters in these contexts where people are looking to forgiveness as a means of transitional justice, as a means to restore people's faith um, in social institutions. But something that's arbitrary and non-transparent has the potential to do exactly the opposite. Um, And so I think that, yeah, as, as tempting as it is to vest a lot of power in forgiveness in transitional justice processes, we should be very careful because it violates these kind of expectations of procedural justice that we have. Um, so that's a kind of more formal worry. Um, I mean, I think my central worry is the idea that state-sponsored forgiveness impermissibly burdens victims. Um, I also have a kind of practical worry that maybe it squanders political capital that could be more aptly directed to programs of material restoration like reparations. So if we're having a big conversation um, about something symbolic like an apology um, and processes of forgiveness, um, then we might be ignoring uh, the more important work of making sure that people aren't in parlous economic situations because of the ways that they've been treated historically. So um, I'd say I'm I'm a fan of uh, material restoration first. Yeah, Mm. makes sense. Yeah. So in, in light of all these problems for forgiveness in the public square, What are the prospects for related practices that aren't quite the same as forgiveness practices like letting go or what you've called shelving it? Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, So I should say that that shelving it is kind of an idea that I have um, that's apt to forgiveness um, in that interpersonal context, in the context of of private relationships. Um, And 
And I, um, I think that in private relations, so I have this kind of general suspicion of forgiveness in the public realm, right? I think mm -hmm. maybe we shouldn't go there, that this is a concept that doesn't translate um, or that translates in a way that's so costly um, that we should pursue other means in the public realm. In private life, I also think that we shouldn't be too wed to the practice of forgiveness. I think it's fraught with difficulty and moral peril for victims um, for reasons that have already kind of come up. Um, you know, you've been wronged. Now someone's asked you for your forgiveness. All of a sudden you're in moral peril because, um, you know, in a society that, that uh, treats forgiveness as this morally valuable thing, you're now in a situation um, where, where people are uh, looking to you for an expression um, of that moral value. And that's, that's a kind of weird situation to be in. Um, I worry that it's freighted with um, certain historic and religious significances that make it difficult for people to conceptualize within a naturalistic moral framework of ethics. Um, and then I also kind of wonder how psychologically plausible some of the big claims that are made on behalf of forgiveness are. And this is where shelving it comes from, uh, because I'm not convinced that we can ever really hope to wipe the slate clean or to undergo a total change of heart or to permanently transform our relationships to wrongdoers, or all of these things that forgiveness is supposed to promise us. Um, so I think, uh, and I'm maybe going out on a limb here, that these sorts of achievements aren't accessible for most people most of the time. But that nonetheless, we can live perfectly good, healthy, moral lives without the language or practice of forgiveness. Um, so instead of striving for uh, this, this kind of lofty goal when we're wronged, um, I think we should just shelve the wrong. And shelving is what happens when you turn away. Um, not with um, any concessions, so we don't concede anything. We don't let go of the fact that we're wronged. We don't let the wrongdoer off the hook. Um, when we shelve, what we effectively say is, this isn't relevant to me right now. I have other things to do. You know, I have other relationships. Um, but if this wrong ever becomes salient again, I will return to it and I reserve my right to prosecute it um, or indeed um, to forgive it. Um, but I think that shelving it concords with the psychology of being victimized for most people. Uh, most of the time uh, when people wrong us, it kind of matters until it doesn't, until it's not relevant, until other things are happening, until our direct attention is directed elsewhere. Um, we shelve the offense. Um, we don't have to have it out with the person. We don't have to seek vengeance. We don't have to forgive. We can just hold our fire. And all of those other options can kind of remain on the table. Um, and the nice feature of this attitude to wrongdoing is that the second that the person offends against me again, the second they wrong me again, the fact that they've wronged me before is immediately salient. And I'm allowed to um, add that to the moral receipt, as it were. I can get the initial wrong off the shelf and allow it to complicate our relationship once more. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the thought. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that seems very typical in practice, especially in the context of, you know, interpersonal relationships. Do you think that some of the same problems you raise for forgiveness in the public sphere arise for things like letting go if, you know, a, a victim was encouraged in the process of reconciliation to let go or shelve something? Do you think some of the same issues would arise in that context? Yeah, so I think, well, what I think is that they, they certainly arise in the case of letting go. Because letting go has that same kind of categorical flavor as forgiveness. Yeah. Um, but I don't think they necessarily arrive in the case of shelv shelving it. Okay. Uh, shelving it says, I always have a right to return to this. Um, mm. You know, you stole from me. If you ever steal from me again, like this is active. Um, or, yeah. um, you know, if our relationship ever exhibits the characteristics that caused me to feel wronged in the first place, um, you know, I can, I can return to that. And that can be part of our story and it can be part of um, the process that we go through. Um, hmm. 
so yeah, so I think it's just, it's kind of psychologically plausible. Um, and, and what I'm concerned to say is that it's also morally fine. Um, it's morally fine if you're victimized, not to give up on the fact of your victimization, um, but to shelve it um, for another day, if and when it's relevant again. So I, I have a question about how forgiveness relates to shelving it, if it does at all. Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking of like maybe specific cases where Someone who wants to keep forgiveness can get all the benefits of shelving it. Mm -hmm. So if they say, well, you know, I can forgive them for what they did to me, but maybe they deny that forgiving equals forgetting. I'm going to remember that you wronged me in the past and I'm and it's going to be relevant when you wrong me or if you wrong me in the future to our future practices. Yeah, so I think like if if forgiveness could connote all of that, then it would be very close to what I'm calling shelving it. But it wouldn't have that categorical flavor. It wouldn't be very satisfying to the person um, who did the wrong thing to be told. <laughs> like we, we can live together now, but I'm holding this over you. And if in the future you ever, you know, I think that that's that that's moving pretty far um, from the sorts of things that people imagine when they when they celebrate forgiveness as a practice. Um, but again, like, you know, I have this view of forgiveness as this heterogeneous cluster concept, and maybe it might be on the edge of the cluster, but it's certainly, mm-hmm. um, you know, within within the range. And um, and that, to me, would be a preferable way of proceeding with the concept um, to these other historical ways that involve wiping away the sin, wiping the slate clean, mm-hmm. changing your heart in a permanent fashion. I think all of that sits ill at odds with human psychology and puts people who've been harmed in a situation where they might feel inadequate with respect um, to their own moral achievement because <laughs> they can't do this impossible thing that's so good that they could do. Um, yeah. Allegedly, you know. Yeah, it seems like what needs to happen if you want to keep forgiveness is forgiveness with boundaries or something like that. Yeah, where, absolutely. Like, you, you know, I can't trust you. Any, I can forgive you maybe. I, I, I keep thinking like, well, Part of the problem seems to be that, as you've mentioned, that forgiveness is actually like this cluster of lots of different concepts. And maybe that's where the confusion comes from, at least in my mind, if I'm trying to figure out, well, you know, how do we keep this and how do we get what you want and all this kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. This has been great. Thanks so much for joining us, Simone. Um, Where can listeners go to follow your work? Uh, okay, so I write reviews semi-regularly for the philosophy section of the Times Literary Supplement, um, and I write academic papers, which you can find on my website, which is just simonegubler.com, um, and most of my most recent stuff is up there. Great. Nice. We'll yeah. link that in the show notes for the episode, too. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been fantastic. Very fun. <laughs> this concludes the seventh season of The Free Will Show. We will be back in 2024 with a new season of interviews, some continuing our exploration of free will and the law, and others on various other topics.